Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. I will be the first to admit that the preparation for this show brought out a lot of feelings in me. I got emotional, you know, I got angry and frustrated and all those things. It's funny, I was talking to uh, David McRaney. He is host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, talking about the necessity of emotion. And sometimes in the skeptical community, we get distrustful about feelings. You know, feelings do not make facts. But it's a fact that you and I are emotional creatures. And this is a good thing. Professor and clinical psychologist Dr. Lawrence Ian Reed has a whole Wondrium series called Understanding Human Emotions. And he gets into our primate ancestors, the utility of emotion to help us survive and thrive and pass down our genes. I found it fascinating and I found it encouraging because I want to feel things about the things I think about. And I think understanding emotions for better and for worse is critical. Understanding human emotions, just one of the huge number of must-watch features on Wondrium. From science to history to art to travel, hundreds of hours of credible fact-based audio and video, documentaries, tutorials, and more taught by the best of the best, streaming on your schedule anywhere, anytime. I highly recommend signing up for Wondrium. You're going to love it. And Wondrium is offering my listeners 50% off of your first three months. That's half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. A fantastic deal. Sign up through my special URL to get this offer, wondrium.com slash Seth. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Wondrium dot com slash Seth. This week, it is a candid conversation about really an attack on the sexual selves of people raised in fundamentalist cultures and families, churches, etc. We're talking about purity culture. I'm going to take your calls as people share their experiences, and then I'm going to finish the broadcast. The last half of the show is going to be a conversation with Janice Selby from Divorcing Religion and also Brady Harden, who is host of the Life After podcast. They escaped purity culture, and they are now helping other people to do the same. Let's define terms. What are we talking about? I saw an article in the conversation written by Elth Waits that I thought really summed it up. I'll just read the first part of it. It says, 
Purity culture was built on an established religious ethic, sexual abstinence until marriage. But it came to encompass a subculture in American evangelical Christianity centered around maintaining sexual purity. During the 1990s and 2000s, a prolific industry of purity-themed Bibles, rallies, and books emerged. Sales of purity rings increased, worn as a symbol of commitment to sexual purity. Purity pledges were signed by teenagers and young adults to demonstrate their vow of abstinence. Beyond abstinence, young Christians were encouraged not to date— Romantic attachments not leading to marriage were discouraged due to a perceived risk of emotional and physical impurity. Young women and girls were instructed to be careful how they dressed and interacted with others to avoid tempting men, and strict gender roles were encouraged. In recent years, it's been shown that purity culture is harmful— It taught women in particular to be suspicious and ashamed of their bodies and resulted in anxiety, panic attacks, and even PTSD. True Love Waits was an organization launched in 1993 that distributed purity pledge cards. Now, a new Bible study promoting sexual purity is reintroducing True Love Waits to the next generation— The studies written by Sean McDowell, the son of U.S. purity culture patriarch Josh McDowell. Purity Ring organization Silver Ring Thing has also recently remarketed as Unaltered Ministries, dropping its focus on purity rings, but nonetheless holding on to its heritage. Alongside this, new brands which recycle purity messaging are also emerging. Take, for example, Girl Defined, which is a YouTube channel run by two sisters promoting, quote, biblical womanhood. Both sisters waited until marriage to kiss their husbands and describe feminism as an attack on God's design for womanhood. The permeation of purity culture into church teachings and cultures can be seen in anxieties around male-female friendships, relationship expectations, the Christian idolization of marriage, the equation of virginity with value, and inferences that women are responsible for gatekeeping men's sexual behavior. Meanwhile, former purity culture adherents are grappling with its after-effects. Many have spent years analyzing how purity teachings affected their view of their body and relationships with other people. Women have described feeling trapped in their own skin. Purity culture endures in the memories, bodies, relationships, and trauma of those who were raised within it. Now, the article mentions these purity pledge cards. Let me just read the back of one of these cards. And you would have this, you would keep it in your wallet or your handbag or whatever, and you would sign it. So you had personalized this pledge, which said on the card, I've signed this now, and I want to renew this decision in two years. When I'm tempted, 
The power of the Holy Spirit makes the difference. Trust and total commitment come first. Jesus died taking the blame, so I can live without the shame. Sex ain't leisure, neither is it free. It's a wedding present, and it's waiting for me. And the purity rings that she mentioned were like wedding rings or promise rings, but it was a promise to God that you would abstain from sex until marriage because you were a gift to your husband. Sometimes the fathers would place the rings upon the fingers. You would have a ceremony. There are some places that have a purity pledge ceremony where they dress these young kids, I mean young, 11, 12, 13 years old. They put them in wedding gowns. They bring the dads in. There is a series of vows And the fathers will place a purity ring on the fingers of their daughters, and the daughters will pledge that they are going to remain, quote-unquote, pure for the next, I don't know, decade, decade and a half. And they have made this solemn promise, this sacred vow, under the eyes of their earthly and their heavenly father. And there are photographs of these purity balls or purity vow ceremonies on the internet. Just Google search it. It will freak you out. Talk about culty. And of course, these poor young kids who are realizing or about to realize their sexual selves, their naturally sexual selves, then go through years and years and years of wrestling with themselves, their own desires, their quote-unquote carnal thoughts. I'm in sin. I'm lusting. I'm disobeying God. I'm damaged goods. And so they think something or do something and have guilt and shame, and then they pray the prayer of forgiveness. Please, Jesus, cleanse my heart of all this carnality and lust. I will never do it again. And then two days later, They do it again, and they go back to their prayer closets and beg Jesus again for forgiveness. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. This cycle for many people never, ever ends. And it's one of the reasons that we are talking about this terrible indoctrination, blaming and shaming of good people doing natural things. Okay, I hesitated playing this next clip because, honestly, it's just hard to listen to. It's sobering, it's enraging, but I think it's necessary. This is a clip from a Nightline feature on ABC News about purity balls. And they were profiling a church and a family that was going through these purity pledges. The father holding his daughter sexually accountable. This is a clip of a man named Ron who is about to go into a purity ball ceremony with his young daughter, Caroline, and he has a special message for her. Here's the clip. Well, you are uh, growing up before your daddy's eyes. One of the things that you were talking to daddy about uh, was, when am I going to get my purity ring? And... um, 
One of the things that I think is important for us to remember is this is your desire to do it the Lord's way, to really save yourself from kissing a lots, lots of toads along the way and wait for your Prince Charming to come along. And he's got to pass through your dad. Uh, and dad's got to put the stamp of approval on him because uh, dads are really smart and they can separate princes from toads really well. Let me uh, show you the ring that I got for you here. And when somebody comes along who is ready and has the proper character and will treat you like a queen, then that's the guy that passes the test. And until then, this is just a reminder keeping yourself pure is important. And so you keep that on your finger and it's a daily reminder that you're, at this point, you're married to the Lord and, uh, and your father is your boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna have fun together. And let me go ahead and give you that. Get ready to dance the night away. You and I are about to crawl out of our own skin. There's just so much wrong with that. So much going on that is just obscene. And yet this is what we're facing. This is what many young people are trapped in. This is what many people have been working for years, even decades, to recover from. Travis, what's on your mind? So just to tell a couple brief stories. Um, one is that I was raised Southern Baptist, and my mom's greatest goal was for my sister to be a virgin when she got married. So she thinks she was a, a huge success there. That was like the most important thing in her life for her. And then also to express my irritation at the uh, Virginia public school system, abstinence-only sex education. They really vilify sex, and you know it's a terrible thing to do, and I just don't think it's the place of the schools to try to instill those values. It's a dirty, 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 dirty thing that you should only do with the person you're going to marry and share life with forever, or at least forever on this earth. It's <laughs> a weird yeah. paradox. Don't share too much any more than you want to. How did that work with your sister? I mean, did it produce dysfunction? Um, I mean, I, my sister and I are not terribly close. So, um, so far as I know, my mom was successful in her goals. And, you know, my sister's been married for, I guess, around 23 years now. So, I mean, if you want to call that success, then success. But um, yeah. I don't know, you know, how, how happy anybody is. Did you go through, I mean, being out of the Baptist church, did you go through some kind of uh, religious sex ad? Because when we did it, it was mostly cross your legs Here's an illustration of a penis and try not to use it for anything other than, you know, I mean, that was pretty much sex ed when I was growing up. Did you go through any of that? So I was a public school person, so we had a very little bit of sex ed. It was pretty much these are the parts and uh, there are some things called birth control, but we're not really going to tell you about it. And then uh, my, my parents did have some books from the 1950s that, you know, had pictures of a flower and um, <laughs> sanit sanitary napkins that you had to use a belt with. Um, wow. So not, not the most modern things ever. Now, wait a minute. Are you, are, were you being <laughs> trained not to deflower the flower? Was that what that was about? or? Uh, perhaps. Uh, that, that might be the case. I don't know. That's weird. I appreciate the call, Travis. I'm glad. Uh, All right. Thanks, Seth. All right. Take care of yourself. I'm glad you escaped. Yeah, we had a, a sex ed class. It was in sixth grade. They brought in some outsider. No idea what his credentials were. Like, who is this guy? I don't know. But he came in and he showed us a few slides. And here's the penis and here's the testicles. And here's how basic male anatomy works. And then he told us, he's like, Whatever you do, don't ever research the female reproductive organs. I mean, he told us that. 
don't look this up. Now, this is pre-internet. And I look back on that and I think about it and I'm like, well, what they were telling us was do not understand the female body or don't try to understand the female body. I don't, I mean, it was so dysfunctional. I remember thinking about uh, afterwards, I'm like, well, this seems like a rather one-sided conversation. Emily at 757, are you there? Yes. Thanks for calling, Emily. What do you have for the show on purity culture? So I was on the opposite end of it. I used to be a teenage leader at one point, and I went through all of the permissions to talk with the kids. I got permissions from their parents to have, you know, just a very frank discussion. But, of course, it was centered around purity. And as a result of that, after I left, I saw some of those teenagers later, and it breaks my heart because now they don't. They will avoid me. Um, I, I live in a different area now, but each time I've seen some of them, you know, they've ended up with pregnancies. Um, a couple of them are LGBTQ, and they felt so condemned by me that they they wouldn't they couldn't face me. And I've only been able to now talk to one of them and let them know, hey, I'm sorry for what I did, the damage that I did to you. And you're loved, and you're a great person, you're a good mother. And then I also found out as a result of that that one of the teenagers ended their lives because they couldn't face that they they were questioning their sexuality, their identity. I see that as, I mean, at least from my remote vantage, as the product of a culture and not your personal responsibility. I want to come back, though, to the conversation you had, saying you're loved, you're beautiful, you're accepted. How did that conversation go after that? Did they respond and receive what you had to say? She really was able to say, I, I thank you. Thank you that, that I don't feel completely isolated from what I grew up in. And, you know, that they, I don't, I mean, I don't know what their belief system is now, but you know, they then started running back into and the whole back and forth thing that you do from church and when you're just living life and call the center constantly. But we were able to have a, a brief conversation and they appreciate it. I know you realize, but you may not realize the extent of what that olive branch, those words of reconciliation and healing and goodness produced. I've just come to the point in my life when I just think there are no little things and that words have so much power and the gift that you gave to that person. You know, I think forgive yourself. We were all indoctrinated. We were all selling bad ideas back in our religious days. But, you know, you were a victim as much as anybody and give yourself credit for finding a way through. Thank you. I still struggle with this feeling guilty for the damage that I caused other people, knowing that I was taught to damage. But at the time, we didn't see it as damage. We saw it as protection. Well, thank you so much uh, for your call. Again, give yourself some credit. Give yourself some grace, and it's going to be okay. All right, Emily? Thank you. All right, thanks for calling. Brian at 208, are you with me? Yeah. This actually, um, I was... You know, I've called in before and I was never raised with religion and stuff like that. But this reminds me 
actually a lot of my very first girlfriend who I met at the Oregon School for the Blind. And she was definitely raised in that sort of culture because she was always about that no sex before marriage. And my family was pretty much no sex under our roof, pretty much is all. My mom actually had talks with my brother about that quite a few times because he and his girlfriends would make out and get, you know. But when my girlfriend would come to visit, my parents were very easygoing with her and me because I had never given them a reason to be concerned, unlike my brother. So my mom would be like, hey, you can close your door and listen to music and stuff like that. And it was just like I'd close the door and my girlfriend would just freak. And it was just kind of like, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to just tear your clothes off, you know. We wouldn't have done anything anyway, just because it would have been so embarrassing. Even if we'd had my parents' permission to actually go all the way, just if my mom wanted to ask me a question and she opens the door and there we are going at it. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> so, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, at any moment there'd be a knock or somebody just bursts in. Yeah. yeah it was making exactly. sense. Exactly. So, you know, but like it's been, let's see, she and I are, I mean, we're both in our forties now. She's a few months older than I am, but it's like, I think about it and, at first I thought she was just afraid of sex, but now that I think about it, I think she was as, at least as afraid of the possibility that she might actually enjoy it. I think that was what continues to scare her even to this day. Cause we do talk from time to time and she'll say something and it's just like, wow. You ever hear those stories of people who, uh, I guess their parents walk in while they were self pleasuring and, uh, that became really an embarrassment. There was an old uh, comedian. Oh yeah clip i'm trying to think oh is an old dennis miller clip this is back before he freaking lost his mind back when he was funny but he talked about the fact yeah. that his mother had caught him so many times masturbating that after a while he couldn't get off till she busted through the door <laughs> i just thought oh, i just thought that was a, a kind of a funny line i'm sorry brian wow. sorry, sorry for going there brother no that's fine that's fine well no what you honestly yeah. what you have like girls were never allowed in my bedroom period door open door closed the bedroom is the i mean it was the bedroom so it's living room it's the den it's the kitchen the yeah. dining room inside outside anywhere but the bedroom right yeah and the sad thing is is that it's left her so unprepared like she's had some experiences with guys besides myself that were a lot less scrupulous that you know they would like one guy was like he wanted to set her up with because uh, he was also blind and he said i'll set you up with sighted guys because they can teach you all this and it was just, whoa, you know, she was not prepared to cope with that because of the purity culture and the naivety. And it was, it, I just think about that and I'm just like, wow. Interesting how many stories come in from people who have sex for the first time on the night of their honeymoon. And it's awful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just terrible. They're, it's awkward. They don't know what they're doing. They, they feel totally unprepared. They're still wrestling with shame. Oh, yeah. You know, and it reminds me of that chapter in your in your book, you know, the Christianity made me talk like an idiot. I'm actually rereading it now on Audible. <laughs> Thank you. And I remember talking to the to my girlfriend at the time and I and we were like talking about this, you know, just because I wanted to understand and she, I wasn't like trying to push, hey, let's, you know, but I was like, why? She goes, well, what if we get married? What if we have sex and then we break up? And I'm like, well, what if we have we wait to have sex and then we divorce? You know, we get married and then we have sex and then we divorce for whatever reason. It doesn't make a difference. Well, it's a dysfunction. 
No doubt. No question. Mm-hmm. Brian, thanks for calling. Thanks for being a part of the show, brother. Thanks for, thanks for, yeah, thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you later. Next up, I've got Mary Ann. Mary Ann, what do you have for us today? So, uh, back when I was 20, so I wasn't raised in purity culture. I was raised a Christian, but not in purity culture. And I lived, I had a boyfriend. We were living together on a farm when I was about 20. And a close friend of his from up there on the farm, he was about 17. And he had this massive crush on this one girl. Like, he had this crush on this girl for years. Anyways, he comes and tells us one time he's very depressed because this girl has gotten pregnant by her brother's best friend and now she's going to marry him and so he's very upset she's only 17 she's been booted from christian school etc etc and he's very down and we always thought okay he's down because you know the girl he's in love with is marrying this guy and then he tells me the real truth was that the girl was at a party and passed out and her brother's best friend took advantage of her when she was drunk she got pregnant she was kicked out of Christian school and was being forced to marry this guy whose job was, he was like 18 years old and he was like a night baker at the, like at Tim Hortons, which is a donut shop here. And I sat there thinking, here is this girl, she's an A student and her family is forcing her to marry a guy who raped her when she was drunk, who's a total loser who works part time at a donut shop. And they don't see anything wrong with that. And I always felt, I wish I would have, I don't know, maybe told her, like, look, this is not right. And, you know, I tried to track those people down. And they are so, because I kind of joined that religion for a little bit. And then I quit because I I decided I actually wanted a university education instead. And it's a long story. But I've tried to contact some of those people. And they won't even contact me on Facebook. And it's kind of like, but it's always wondered what happened to her. Did she get away from this guy? Like, how did life turn out? And I often, I often wonder that, and I often think I should have said something to her. Don't punish yourself too much, and maybe the opportunity will present itself. Maybe one day your paths will cross, that door will open. But uh, I think it's a window into a common problem, and I appreciate your call, Marianne, mm-hmm. very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I see on uh, the chat someone had the word rape, question mark. Yes, if she passed out at a party and somebody had sex with her, she was raped. It's weird that I have to clarify that. I've got Jenica. Jenica, you with me? I am. Now, full disclosure, Jenica and her husband Patrick have been friends of mine for a long time. We actually spoke, uh, this has been years that we had uh, a conversation about fundamentalism and what you came out of. And what I remember most is you said when you realized that all of the stuff that you'd been indoctrinated with was false, you were pissed. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I got to talk to Janica. So share as much as you want, but you escaped what culture? I was raised fundamentalist, Protestant, Christian, I was homeschooled until ninth grade, so, you know, pretty sheltered upbringing. And, you know, we believed in the gifts of the Spirit. We believed in, you know, we believed all of the main fundamentalist stuff, like homosexuality is wrong, 
sex before marriage is wrong. All that matters in your life is serving God. (laughs) So my entire life was wrapped up in what I believed and how I should act in accordance to what I believed. Was it like uh, ACE or Becca? Was it uh, like, I've seen the graphics, the illustrations where Mm -hmm. they show the young girl, she's looking in the mirror going, oh, I'm showing too much skin. (laughs) Oh, I need to be more modest for Jesus. Was it that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, I actually did a Becca. And yeah, it was very, very, you know, Christian-centered, all of the homeschooling materials, which is funny now because I'm actually homeschooling my two boys. I have been for the past couple years. And to homeschool them the way that I kind of wish I would have been (laughs) is refreshing and a little bit healing, too. Did they blame you for the lust of men? Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) I, I remember specifically times when I'd be getting dressed either to go to youth group or, you know, once I was in high school, getting dressed for school. And my dad would see me wearing like a tank top, not even showing cleavage or anything, but a tank top. And he would send me back upstairs to put something more modest on. (laughs) And I used to wear flannel shirts tied around my waist just so that my jeans weren't showing too much of my butt or whatever. And it was definitely on me to make sure I wasn't a stumbling block to the men around me. It's like uh, men are really rapey, but it's kind of women's fault. (laughs) I mean, that was the message that they were trying to say. I mean, not that men. I know males are just as damaged, I think, by purity culture as anybody. But it's a different flavor, right? Because as the gatekeepers of sexual purity... You're the ones that are supposed to, what, manage how men respond sexually? Yeah, I mean, the way I was taught was that men can't help themselves. Their goal in life is to procreate, and so they just want to all the time, and all you are is, you know, sex to them. (laughs) And that that's the way God created them. They just can't help it. So in order to help your fellow, you know, young men not stumble and fall, then you are responsible as the woman to make sure that you are you know, dressing in a way that's not going to draw attention to your body. And if they do get creepy and rapey, it's your fault. Did you go through that whole cycle, you know, bad thoughts, I'm a sinner, repent, try not to do it again, and then you do it again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, something I know now that I didn't know then is that I have ADHD, which means I'm impulsive and I'm also always seeking dopamine. And so, you know, what gives you more dopamine and happy hormones than sex and touching and stuff like that? So I, quote, unquote, messed up over and over again. And I just had constant, unending shame for all of my young adult years. It was really quite debilitating at times. In fact, I nearly took my life over it. I I had sex before marriage, which is the number one big sin for women. It was a horrifying experience. Like I came very, very close to ending my life over that. Can you tell me a little bit as much as you want about the kinds of struggles you were having? Well, one of the things that actually surprised me was how much I carried with it even into my marriage. So I always thought, you know, once I'm married to a good Christian man, then all of this guilt and shame I feel surrounding sex will just magically go away because now I'm in a sanctified marriage. But it didn't. It it stayed with me and it 
continued to cause me to feel dirty and unclean um, or not even want to experiment sexually so much because it was supposed to be, you know, this beautiful lovemaking experience. And so the thoughts I was having of, you know, doing more dirty type things (laughs) just made me feel shameful. Another thing was that I was a lot more sexually experienced going into our marriage than Patrick was. And, um, and he's fine with me saying that too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, but because of that, I felt like I had ruined him in a way, you know, he came into our relationship pure (laughs) and I, you know, corrupted him in my Mm -hmm. mind. And because of that, I always felt wrong and not good enough for him. It took, it took quite a while, even after becoming an atheist to let go of those feelings of being the corrupter. Cause you know, once we left religion, then I was thinking in his family's eyes, I've corrupted him now because I've brought him into atheism and it's all my fault. Mm-hmm. So it was just like this constant shame cycle that started with the shame around sexuality and purity. And it just kind of became ingrained in who I am. That's an interesting angle. I, you know, Jesus is in the bedroom and he's kind of likes to watch. And so this kind of sex is okay. And it's kind of the more conservative version. But if you get too adventurous, we feel like we've perverted God's, I don't know, the missionary position model for, I mean, was that where you were going with that? Because I think that's an angle we haven't yet covered. Even people in a marital relationship who want to experiment and try new things feel guilty because this ain't moral or natural, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, You know, I had this idea in my head that marriage is the coming together of two souls in lovemaking. So if I want him to pin me down or, you know, be forceful or something, how is that lovemaking? It it feels wrong in that context. But in reality, and as I've learned, like, (laughs) you can do anything in the bedroom as long as it's consensual. Finding that freedom was huge to us. And it opened us up to all kinds of new experiences that before just seemed wrong. Jenica, are you still pissed? <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you look back and you uh, do you still think? <clears throat> I will never cease to be pissed. I have been able to separate myself enough at this point that it's not ruling my life. For a while there, my anger ruled. And now I'm able to just kind of, you know, live my life like a normal person. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the anger is definitely still there. It's hard, though, because I can't direct it at my parents. They were doing what they thought was best and they were doing it out of love. I can't necessarily even be mad at my pastors because same, they loved me and they loved the church and they wanted us to be close to God. So it's like this anger that's just there and I can't even point it at anybody. All I can do is point it at bad ideas, which, you know, I, I learned that, you know, wording or whatever by listening to you when I first, you know, came out as an atheist seven years ago. Um, just that it's not, you know, we're all victims. 
not, I mean, there are definitely those out there who are perpetrating, but a lot of people who are Christians are just good people trying to do good, but causing harm unknowingly. And so my anger just goes towards those bad ideas, not so much towards the people. I think anger's healthy. I think it's justifiable. Yeah. You stay pissed, Jenica. I'm just saying. But I'm glad you. <laughs> I'm glad you found more life balance. And it's true. I, when I was spreading bad ideas, I was a perpetrator of them. But I was also a victim of bad ideas. And you know, it's not binary. It's not like both of those things can't exist in the same space. You know, we're complicated beings. Yeah. You doing okay right now? You doing better these days, Jenica? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy, happy to live in freedom and not bogged down by rules and, you know, all these rules that were put upon my body. I'm I feel free of those now. And this call, I think, is going to be a great encouragement to a lot of other people who've been nodding and sort of leaning into the conversation because it really reflects what they've been through. So, Jenica, you are a dear friend. I so appreciate you. Give Patrick a big hug from me. And thanks for sharing your story on what has been, a, you know, kind of a hard conversation, but I think a compelling and necessary show. You're greatly appreciated. It's my pleasure, Seth. Okay, the last half of the show, I'm going to talk to two people who have been down these roads and are now committing their work to helping other people escape purity culture. Janice Selby of Divorcing Religion and Brady Harden, who is host of the Life After podcast. Going to be a great conversation. It's coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you would like this show early and totally commercial-free, become a patron with my heartfelt thanks to you for your support. Just go to patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. So very thankful to be talking here to a couple of special guests. I've got Janice Selby 
a religious recovery consultant. She is founder of the Shameless Sexuality Life After Purity Culture Conference. I've also got Brady Harden, ex-Christian host of the Life After podcast. Janice and Brady, so good to have you both. Thank Pleasure you. To Thank Great you. to be here. I know Janice's story. You know, she came out of a monumentally repressive fundamentalist <laughs> culture. I'll let you guys look up Janice's story on your own because it's amazing. It's also amazing that you got out because it is. it's like Little House on the Prairie meets Handmaid's Tale. I mean, is that close? <laughs> I, I think I think that's uh, very close. And I have had such a great time blowing things out of the water since then, just reveling in my freedom. It's yeah, wonderful. We got it. We are. We're going to talk about some of that. And uh, Brady, give me your background real fast. I know you're an ex-Christian, but spell it oh. out for me. What What's up? Grew up very repressed, very religious household, but it was also abusive. My parents got divorced. Uh, I got really involved into the church at the same time that I realized, oh, I'm gay, but I was never going to be able to act on that. So I was open about repressing it. I went through Bible college, did the whole thing, got my degree, was going to be a pastor, met a woman, got married, had a kid, and she was cheating on me, but things weren't working out. She met somebody else, so we got a divorce and had some really horrible spiritual abuse. They were horrible towards her, horrible towards me. That's what finally got me to question. So I got out of it all, uh, proved my innocence to them through the Bible, and they put me under church discipline. And then um, after I proved my innocence, they said they owed me an apology, and it took them months and months and months to get around to it. And that's when I stopped believing in the Holy Spirit. So I finally downloaded Grinder at the age of 28. Um, so over the years, co-parenting, learning how to be a single dad, um, my ex-wife and I became really good friends again. She went through therapy, left the religion, realized that she's also queer. She's now married to a woman, and we all co-parent as really close friends. And it's like this perfect like found family scenario that my family was never able to do, even though they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and had supernatural love and unity. Um, so... <laughs> A lot of the things that I do now is about raising awareness of this sort of situation and through my podcast, A Life After, of having other people who've gone through the same crazy deconstruction situations. What does church discipline look like? This is a culture that holds you accountable. They get to be the arbiters of what you do in your private relational sexual life. Can you flesh that out? Well, yeah, I I didn't do the only reason that I was disfellowshipped is because I was allowing her to divorce me at that time. Did um, they I blame had, you? Did they say if you'd been a better husband or whatnot? Or if I would have washed her better in the word and things like that. But you know, and, and it goes all goes down to this. Well, you know, I'm not a perfect husband. Well, then anybody who says that's telling the truth. But then we. We, we put all of the blame. So it goes back and forth, but they were also equally treating her like shit. And there were one or two of, for sure, one of the pastors who were making sexual advancements toward her in private. So wow. it was like really messed up. Weapons grade dysfunction and boundary <laughs> violations, no doubt. Janice, remind me, when did you crawl out of fundamentalism, out of this sort of shame, purity culture? I think probably about... 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, that I first questioned and figured, okay, this is not, my life isn't going the way it's supposed to go. I must have bet on the wrong horse. And I felt like 
surely God is out there somewhere, just in some other religion uh, or philosophy. So then when I left Christianity, I really dove into New Age and looked for him there. And guess what? He wasn't, he wasn't there either. But it also really coincides. So my, my marriage was dissolving took a number of years that the, it was fraying, the threads were fraying. And I had known since I was probably about 12 that I was attracted to women and men, but I also was very aware that that would not be acceptable in the growing up in the church and in a quite a religious family. And so I just really tried to squash that, forget all about it. And I met and married someone who was going to become a pastor and just kind of followed all those prescribed steps that were supposed to guarantee marital bliss. And it was not the case, it didn't matter how hard we both tried. And I couldn't, until the marriage was really nearing the end, and I thought, I've got nothing left to lose. And then I talked to my husband at the time, and I said, you know, I think I actually might be bisexual. And and his response was actually very funny, because he just laughed. And he said, oh, yeah, you know that, and that's a surprise to you. Like, he, he wasn't surprised at all. We'd been together for almost 20 years. He's like, I, I think I already know. And then we had to navigate, well, what do we do here? Do we divorce? Do we stay together but open our marriage? Do we stay together but I explore relationships with other women? How can we do these things? How can we protect our children who already were going through lots of trauma just because the marriage was falling apart? And so we had some tough things to navigate and work through. And so then eventually we did divorce and like Brady, I'm so thankful to say he and I have just a beautiful friendship now. It's much more mm-hmm. solid than we ever had when we were married. We really want the best for each other and really support each other. He was just over for early Canadian Thanksgiving with my new husband and my kids. Everybody was there and it was a nice, happy family. But I needed permission to explore that part of myself and to do it without any shame. What's Canadian Thanksgiving? Is that just like you cook a goose? I mean, what has it? No, never mind. Never mind. That's a digression. With maple syrup, yeah. That's that's a different. That's a whole other other podcast. So you know, there's that verse in the Bible that says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. It's oh, yes. one of those ways that you know they really push young people who are sexually hormonally driven. You know, they're just really feeling it all, and they're like, well, if you're feeling these feelings and you don't think you can hold out. Rather than become an adulterer, you should sign on the dotted line, say the vows mm-hmm. in front of the preacher. Did both of you get married young? And was it for that reason? I was considered an old maid. I didn't get married till uh, 24. And I was horrified to see all of my, these younger women at church, you know, 19, 20, 21, everyone was getting married off. And I just, there were no takers. And so I just felt really terrible about myself and about what was going on and thinking maybe I would never meet anyone. And then my pastor introduced me to the fellow that I did end up marrying. It's funny, though. I mean, you're of legal age. I look at myself when I was 18, 19, 20, 22. I got married the first time at 22. I was still a kid. I mean, you don't know enough to come in out of the rain. Yeah. I mean, who am I? What do I want? What, I don't have any life experience. What's going on? Everything was rush, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, back to you, Brady. Were you young when you, you know, said the vows? 
I was really old, 25, 26. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah. But yeah, it was very much purity culture. I grew up, didn't have sex before I was married. And even in my mind, because I knew I was attracted to guys, that added a whole other layer to it and a whole mm-hmm. other internal, constant internalization and systematic like avoidance I had to do and, and just constantly make bargaining with God in my head of, I need more godly guy friends then because then this is what made me gay or mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Going through that whole situation with an added layer of not even be able to feel okay if I am starting to lust. Like there's just this whole other thing that's hard to explain. Um, and so mm-hmm. it almost created a very much a dualism in me. We had accountability partners which is, uh, for those who aren't familiar with this little piece of heaven, if you start to feel feelings of carnality, lust, the lust of the flesh or whatnot, in some way there is, um, I don't know, what, what would you call them? It's almost like a, a sponsor in the AA model, like somebody you can call and confess to and say, I'm really struggling, would you pray with me? I mean, describe either one of you. I guess I'll start with Janice. The whole concept of the accountability partner. I think it really ties in very well with the whole notion of Christians being kept in a very childlike state, you know, where we're never actually reach adulthood, never able to actually manage our own lives and affairs so that we always need someone who knows more, someone who can corral us and tell us what to do. And so, yeah, you have an accountability partner, you reach out to them to tattle on yourself when you've had a bad thought or you your hands have been getting busy or whatever's going on there. Uh, and so then you you tell them. And I mean, you certainly hope that they keep it secret, absolutely confidential. Uh, but I mean, the church is a cult of confession in a lot of ways. I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently with a, an ex-Mormon. And they were talking about how it really is kind of a, a surveillance culture. Because if you were to confide in someone or they were to observe something that they consider to be ungodly or unholy, you get reported to the elders or the high council or something. And before you know it, I mean, you're you're under the gun. And it yeah. happens more with queer people, right? Because there's this other layer of, well, I have to warn the others because, you know, they're dangerous to be around kids or they're going to be dangerous. Oh. All those other homophobic bullshit that gets wrapped up in that. So I can't even mm-hmm. tell you how many times I've had queer friends that had an accountability partner at church and that accountability partner went to the youth pastor and was like, oh, so-and-so's gay or went to the head pastor once their family and be like, oh, I need you to know for their sake that they're gay and then outing them and all the trauma and bullshit that goes on with that. And then the gospel added on top of that. And Jans, what you were mentioning about the cult of confession, right? That's so common in the cult structure is to have that person that you are divulging your secrets to and that creates a leverage that then keeps you in it and it keeps you with a strange dual relationship with that person who's supposed Mm -hmm. to be your friend but now you're also treating them as your therapist in some ways and it's just the blinds leading the blind oh yeah and we know too that in cults cult leaders are very concerned at some point Pretty much every cult leader will become very concerned with sex. Who's having sex Mm -hmm. with whom? They'll start deciding who can have sex with whom and even when, how often that sex can be. And it's very invasive. And so in some ways, uh, Christianity can be like that, too. 
there's a small church here in in uh, Missouri that the church that I was like disfellowship from is connected to, and they have a family of very attractive daughters, and they use those daughters almost as a way to attract people to that oh, church. No. And then they decide who they're going, the pastor and that family is deciding who they're actually going to date or not. And it's created so much weird things, but it's almost like treating that attractiveness as a commodity and to attract, and it just, it's mind blowing and so backwards and disgusting. I want to come back to sort of this, um, the commodity of beauty but first, I want to go to this article that was posted recently on Only Sky Hemet Meta of all the lurid details we heard during the Josh Duggar trial. And you can look that up if you want, but the Duggar family, the 19 kids and counting, and he was a sexual abuser, etc. Before he was sentenced to over 12 years in prison for downloading and possessing illicit images of child sexual abuse, one of the most surprising involved a spying app called covenant eyes that had been installed on his computer. Mm -hmm. The Christian accountability program was supposed to alert certain designated people. If you were looking at anything online that you shouldn't have been, it's primarily known as a tool used by pastors to keep tabs on gay members who think they're quote, struggling with same sex Mm -hmm. attraction. I used it. Describe it for me, uh, Brady. I mean, what are we talking about? I mean, it would check your your IP if it kind of worked as a VPN that you had to have it connected to it in order to be on the Internet uh, is how it had the settings. And it would track any website that you went to. Um, I think that I wasn't completely aware of proxy servers at that time. Uh, I probably could have bypassed. But but for me, it it was a welcomed thing because... I uh, was struggling with same-sex attraction, and I didn't want to act on it. So I put myself in that situation of accountability on purpose. And the more I look back at it, it is, it's cult bullshit. And it just absolutely is disgusting. Back to beauty and the covering of beauty. I remember when I was in Christian school, and I wrote about this in my most recent book, girls were not allowed to wear blue jeans. Blue jeans were, for some reason, deemed too form-fitting, too alluring, or whatever. And so um, they were not allowed to wear blue jeans, except on Fridays when we had a football game. It was called Spirit Day. Yeah, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We had pep rallies. And then it was a reward for the girls who were able to wear blue jeans. And I was struck by that because two things. First of all, how can it be wrong and also a reward on Fridays? Right. And two, you weren't going to repress the sexuality of these young people. The girls simply switched to form-fitting pants of another color, denim of another color, or form-fitting skirts, or you know whatever else. I mean, the more these Puritans tried to suppress natural sexuality, the more it backfired on them. I think it's especially important right now, given uh, what's going on in Iran and women refusing to be subjected to continued religious oppression, telling them that they must cover up. And so we think of purity culture in terms of having its roots in evangelical Christianity in the 90s and early 2000s, when that whole industry arose around it with purity rings, purity pledges, 
purity balls, which I think is hilarious. But anyway, it actually goes back, of course, much, much farther uh, for Abrahamic religions, thousands of years of women being forced to be the sexual gatekeepers. And so men and boys might have thoughts that are bad, but the women themselves are actually bad because they can be the, the they cause or create these lustful yeah, you're the you're the the Jezebel, right? Yeah, there's uh, no way to there's no there's no way to win. It's a double bind when you're born a woman into a purity obsessed hymen worshiping culture. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, real fast clarify. I know you'd mentioned Iran. There may be a few people I really would like everyone to be dialed into this story, but Janice is talking about the uh, protests that are going on in 80 plus cities throughout Iran. They're happening in Toronto. They're happening in places all around the world. People showing solidarity after the murder of Masa Amini. She was not, quote unquote, properly veiled in the Mm -hmm. eyes of the Islamic regime. And they essentially beat the shit out of her, put her in a coma, and she died. And now we are seeing these amazingly courageous people who are ripping off their hijabs and niqabs and they are protesting in the streets. There's been military resistance. People have died. Dozens of people are dead. And yet this this sort of call for a revolution, a return to normalcy and human rights normalcy continues. That's going on right now. But you're right. I mean, fundamentalist Islam isn't really all that different from the Christian Bible. <laughs> I mean, is no, that accurate? And, and what's going on there can very easily happen in America and in North America because we see people, again, wanting to install a theocracy. Well, if you want to know what that looks like, look at Iran. You know, they're, they're, they think the morality police and the, the Islamic leaders of that country think they are just being absolutely devoted to their sacred text. That's in air quotes, their sacred text. And Christian nationalists feel the same way. Brady, you watching this assault main post row. Now we're looking at LGBT rights are sort of coming back into focus. And I mean, it's, oh my God, right? It's been crazy. It hits me too how much purity culture is wrapped up in. The, the closest thing that we have to magic or the closest thing that we have to a supernatural experience as humans is probably an orgasm is <laughs> probably like <laughs> having sex and then like life. So it makes sense that religion is trying to steal something that belongs to our bodies and then tries to sell it back to us under their own terms. So it creates this dependency upon it to even grasp something that's within us. Right. So then you get the nationalist, the Christian nationalist on top of that to where a government is then trying to control that is trying to control orgasms is trying to control sex and make it only be one way. And then Now, in addition to feeling responsible to the religion, we have to be responsible to a government as well. It's fucking bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, And it hit me with with Roe. Like, that hit me hard. Like, my family is the exact opposite of me. My mom and stepdad run in a crisis pregnancy center. And it's just we couldn't be any far different. And so just knowing how that community was responding to all of that as well of just the nearsightedness of it all was just heartbreaking and obnoxious and then just adding the intersectionality of it too of like oh shit we're next 
fuck, you know, like it took me so long to work towards this found family that I have with my ex-wife and her partner and with our son. And now there's, they're coming at that. We've done everything we can to get away from this fucking community and Mm -hmm. all the energy that it's stolen away from us. And now it's finding ways to still come back in and try to control things. And it's ridiculous. I want to be clear not to insult anybody's intelligence or whatnot, but I know there are some people, especially perhaps our international audience, won't know what a crisis pregnancy center is. These are largely church-run or religious organizations that will quote-unquote counsel young, usually unwed teenagers. And I guess, is it accurate to say that try to talk them out of an abortion or try to talk them into having the child, raising it, adopting it? Is that, would you phrase it that way? Whatever manipulative tactics they can do, because it feels like to them, they're saving a life. And so that makes any emotional or shame appeal worth it. And unfortunately, we have those in uh, in Canada as well. And they are very sneaky with how they promote themselves on the Internet. And so that if a teenage person is looking up, you know, that they're in crisis and they're having a pregnancy, those will pop up right away. And the teenager thinks, oh, here's someone who will help me with my pregnancy. But it's actually not that way. They'll, like Brady said, just use whatever pressure tactics they can, manipulation tactics to force the person to carry the fetus to term and then encourage them to give the child up or to raise the child. But really, they don't care after the baby's born. A few more minutes here with Janice Selby. She is founder of the Shameless Sexuality Life After Purity Culture Conference and Brady Harden of the Life After podcast. Tell me about this conference real quick, Janice. What is it? When is it? It's online and it's October 14th to 16th. So that's coming up very quickly. And I have several speakers who will be, it'll be uh, basically a Zoom kind of format and people can buy tickets to watch live and interact with the speakers, do question and answer, or they can just buy the recordings afterwards. And I have many, many speakers who are familiar and experts even on the topic of religious trauma and also purity culture and how those two intersect. So I have psychologists and sex therapists and social workers, people who run programs to help teach about dating, dating after purity culture, because that's huge. If you were married oh, yeah. as a as a young <laughs> Christian, and then you divorce in your late 30s or 40s, and you have no idea, you've never used a dating app. Oh, my God, it's <laughs> it can be, that can be traumatizing in itself. So we have some people uh, who are specialists in that area and people who will speak very frankly about sex and sexuality, uh, identity and attraction, things like vaginismus, things that can really affect a woman's ability to enjoy sex because of the messaging and programming she has received or he has received. And we'll also have folks representing different parts of the LGBTQ two-spirit group. I just think it's going to be hopefully very validating, very educating, really a supportive atmosphere. And I'm offering continuing education credits. I'd like therapists to attend. And also I have student discounts and even partial discounts for folks who really feel like it's important for them to hear the teachings, but they can't afford to come. Then they can just reach out to me and I'll do what I can to help. 
Toss me a link to that, and I'll stick it in the description box of the show, would you? I sure will, and it's just shamelesssexuality.org. Oh, okay. If you just think of orgasm, then it's shamelesssexuality.org. <laughs> right, we've talked a lot about the negatives. Let's try to provide some tools or, or some encouragement. It's funny, when I was writing about this recently on a chapter in Purity Culture, I was talking about what kind of advice I would give to my younger self. Like, looking back all these decades— all the advice I would give myself is the total antithesis of the stuff that I thought I should be doing. You know, like it was scandalous for you to have sex before marriage. It was scandalous if you masturbated. It was scandalous if you live together without being married. You're shacking up. You're quote unquote living in sin. And now I'm like, oh my God, have tons of sex. Find out if you are sexually compatible with somebody. Live in the same space with them. If you want to do some solo runs and it feels good, knock yourself out, right? You're not going to grow hair on your hands or go blind or any of the stuff (laughs) that they said was going to happen. I mean, what would you say? Come on, I'll, I'll start with you, Brady. I mean, you talk to your former self. You go back in the time machine and you give yourself some encouragement and counseling. What would you say? Definitely to allow myself to be gay. I mean, I don't know how I could word that to where my child version would respond to it. No, I'm not saying we'd be listening. Like, you couldn't tell me much of anything in my cocky youth. (laughs) Okay. But but we're fantasizing that we are an open, we are actually receiving the signal. So, yeah, what advice? Go ahead. Definitely to not run away from that and to accept myself or um, not trust that stupid, dusty old fucking book. uh, Because it is a all or nothing thing at that time. Right. So yeah, just allow myself to be gay. It would have been amazing to be out and dating when I was really attractive and hot and in great shape, you know, but like, those years were wasted, damn it. And oh, you're I, still well, attractive, you, Brady. Don't sell yourself short. Don't hide your light under a bushel. You've got to let it shine, Brady. Uh, but, I, I mean, I've definitely made up more for it. Uh, but I just, you know, that just to, to, to allow myself to be myself, just like the genie told Aladdin, um, be yourself. And mm. to me, that was like a satanic message as a child <laughs> so janice i mean you go back in time and talk to the younger you who's wearing the floor length denim skirt with no makeup <laughs> and your hair i don't know did you, did you have the long hair and and all that oh i did i did and i kept it up i kept that hair well out of sight i called myself oh my god you're gonna love this i referred to myself as the lord's veiled handmaiden oh, that's, that's- <laughs> That's priceless. I know. But you know what I would tell is if you are feeling shamed, if someone else is, you know, if you're feeling shame, that has come from someone else. That is someone has given you a message of shame. It is not yours. It is not internal. It has come from an outward source and you do not have to accept that shit. You don't ha- you can say I'm not taking that shame. You can keep it for yourself. Much like Brady said, just be yourself and you're allowed to explore. I tell my clients that life is just like a buffet table and it spreads out for miles before us with all the delectable delights and 
religion would have us starve to death right there at that buffet table. But it doesn't have to be that way. We're allowed to try a bite of everything on that table. If it's, it's not illegal and we're not hurting another person, we can go back for seconds and thirds if we want, or we can decide that's not for us. We're going to go right on to the next bite and we're not going to feel guilty about it or shame about it. It's just an experience. Some experiences we care to repeat, others we don't. Get out there and live. Enjoy your life. I guess that's the answer to my final question. I mean, I was thinking, I know there are people who listening right now still scarred. Maybe they still have the open wounds from purity culture, sexual shaming. Their whole identity has essentially been under assault by people who have crossed boundaries in an obscene way to tell somebody else who they are, who to love, how to express themselves in every way. And they still even irrationally feel chained to it. They feel guilty. They're, they still wrestle with it. So, I mean, I guess let's finish there. I mean, that person's listening and they're like, I'm navigating some pretty hardcore stuff. I'm saddled with all this stuff. What would you say? I guess I'll start with Brady. The most important thing is to treat others the way that you want to be treated, and that includes our information. So if you think that a Muslim is indoctrinated, assume that you're equally indoctrinated, and then use that as a way to start unraveling yourself. So in that way, in this situation, if you're feeling shameful of like, oh my God, you know, I've done this horrible thing, it's ever realized that people in other religions feel the exact same way. And if you don't think that it's the Holy Spirit talking to them, then start questioning, well, what is it? Well, it's the way that they were brought up. It was the conditioning of their culture. It's how the religion taught. Well, that religion isn't real. Well, how do you know yours? When you start having that objectivity and that sort of um, just ability to zoom out and look at the situation bigger, so many things start to unravel. Listen to other people's stories who have left the faith. Podcasts like this or that Janice has or the life after, where it's people who, when we finally had internet, it's not like all the Christians got together and said, oh my God, here are all the ways the Bible is real. Here are all the answers or all the prayers got answered. Here are all the miracles, all the signs and wonders. No, a whole bunch of people got in contact and we said, oh shit, this has really fucked up my life. Mm. And the thing that is consistent through that, the fruit that's coming out of that on a consistent basis is not a fulfillment of what the Bible says, but is stories like mine and like Janice's where it's people who have been harmed by it. Listen to those people mm-hmm. and stop taking faith is believing what you're told. Stop believing what you're told and look for your goddamn self. By the way, since you mentioned the internet, I just want to thank the Bible Belt States of the United States of America for being the top consumers of online porn in the entire country. Have you guys seen those statistics? It's like freaking Utah. You know, it's Oklahoma. It's Texas. It's Alabama, Mississippi. It's all these repression states where, you know, Pornhub is like, thanks, Bible Belt, for making us so popular (laughs) throughout the Midwest and the South. Janice Selby. Yes. Talk to me and talk to uh, someone who's listening who might still be wrestling, who could use some encouragement, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you are 
Uh, if you've divorced religion or you're divorcing religion or you're recovering from religion, reach out for help. You don't have to do it on your own. You can contact me at divorcing-religion.com. You can go to seculartherapy.org to find a secular therapist near you. Read my friend, Alice, Alice Gretchen. Read her book called Wayward. It's a wonderful memoir. Yes. She calls it a memoir of spiritual warfare and sexual purity. There are many other other people who have walked a similar journey to the journey that you're on. It doesn't matter if you're coming out of uh, Islam, Orthodox Judaism, Christianity. There are other people who can relate, and there are supportive, healthy groups as well that you can find. Janice Selby, religious recovery consultant, Brady Harden of the Life After podcast. If they and I can bust out, maybe there's hope for anybody, right? <laughs> if we can be that indoctrinated and we can find our way to liberation, freedom, and what my friend Gail Jordan would call more light, air, and space, right? I mean, some people were like, well, would you ever want to go back to the to the safety and the security of religion? And I just, I'm like, absolutely not. Like, there's no way, right? Wouldn't you answer it the same way? It'd be like living in the holodeck. It's not real. Yes. Well, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he said, the mind once expanded can never return to its original dimensions. And I think that's exactly what happens to us when we finally free ourselves from religion. You two have been a real joy to have on the show and your insights are so important. Thanks for the work you do and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Calm. 